Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Emily Best, who's the founder and CEO of Seed and Spark, a platform that makes entertainment more diverse, inclusive, connected, and essential. In this episode, we talk about how Seed and Spark got started and why they made a big pivot in 2020, the story behind building the platform itself and how that took over a year to actually get up and running, what went into the launch of Seed and Spark, how Emily grew this company through live workshops. She ended up doing 120 live workshops per year, which obviously during the pandemic time has adjusted the business model behind Seed and Spark and what goes into a successful crowdfunding campaign, all of that and more in this episode. As always, these show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. You'll find links to everything mentioned in the episode. And you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Emily Best, founder and CEO of Seed and Spark. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. And for people who aren't familiar with Seed and Spark, can you tell us a little bit about what the company is doing? Sure. I think for people who are familiar with Seed and Spark, they don't even know what we're doing because we navigated <laughs> quite a hefty pivot this year. Um, we, for the last eight years, have really been well known for um, generating greater equity and inclusion in entertainment through our education programs and crowdfunding platform, right? We've been really dedicated to. Uh, helping creators from anywhere and everywhere get their stories made and seen. Um, but uh, about two years ago, a sort of uh, new challenge popped up, which is our creators uh, <laughs> who were really leveraging our platform to build sustainable careers, right? Like building a direct connection with their audience, um, uh, like building tools of entrepreneurship for themselves, uh, they started coming to us and saying, we see a problem because we're not only about building a sustainable career, we're actually really interested in um, making cultural impact with our work. And right now our work is being delivered through social media marketing and on streaming platforms. And both of those things are completely dominated by recommendation algorithms that create opinion silos. So effectively in the great democratization of distribution, we are only reaching people who already agree with us. And that's yeah. not the point. So, uh, and I apologize if you hear a screaming toddler in the background. That's <laughs> Life happens. That's what toddlers do. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> um, so uh, this was a really interesting problem. How do you reach audiences who don't necessarily self-identify as the audience for this work at scale <laughs> without using social media or streaming? Um, and a shrewd, uh, advisor of mine said, you know, the workplace is the most diverse place most people are in their lives. And I thought, well, that's so interesting. So it was a six month research project and a big beta test. And what we've built and launched is film forward. And it's a comprehensive corporate and organizational training program, um, for building soft skills in the workplace needed to build truly inclusive workplaces, um, built around film. So we leverage the films that are already getting generated in our platform by our creators. And we build education models, modules around them um, and deliver them into corporations to change those workplaces and make them better for people. So we are aligning these films making money with these films making impact. That's awesome. And that's really where we're focused uh, 
for the foreseeable future. Now, don't get me wrong. Crowdfunding and education are not going anywhere. That is, um, that is our connection to our community, but that's, um, we really see now that we have to have a place to put all that incredible content and we have to be able to deliver on more than just the notion of a sustainable living for our creators. On that note then, Emily, just going a little bit deeper on that, you mentioned and you said six months to kind of develop that. What went, what went into that in terms of figuring out what this was going to be and how you're going to create this? Um, I tweeted, uh, I would like to talk to all the diversity and inclusion professionals you can connect me with. <laughs> and I got... 300 recommendations. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it turns out it's been really useful to be um, sort of in the diversity and inclusion space for the last eight years because it turns out like I'm one degree of separation from everybody else doing this work. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, so we made our way through the list and we just started reaching out to people and asking if they would talk to us and we designed a research project. Um, So we had a list of questions we would ask a person if they were a corporate leader versus like a, uh, like directly a a diversity and inclusion professional or an educator, like a consultant, somebody more broadly in like learning and development. And we, um, so we asked everybody the same set of questions. It took us, uh, I think four months to make our way through the, the list to the best of our ability. And, um, and really it was the generosity of those hundreds of people who gave us, 30 plus minutes of their time. Um, And then we synthesized that research and realized there was a really common set of problems. Um, Engagement. So getting employees to actually engage in soft skills training, in diversity and inclusion, in the ideas of um, inclusive leadership or a diverse workplace, number one. Number two, um, getting actionable employee intelligence. So, you know, when companies send surveys out to their employees, their employees are like, well, I'm kind of just going to tell you what you want to hear. Right. Um, so, so how do we get good, good data and deliver it safely and anonymously in such a way that these companies can gain? And this was the third big gap where like the real strategic insights they needed to make decisions. So, you know, there's a lot of obsession in diversity and inclusion specifically, but in a lot of corporate education on like metrics, what are the metrics, right? What are the KPIs? And the truth is, like, that data is just stuff you need to make a decision. Right. Right? It's stuff you need to decide this is valuable or it's not, right? Um, So if we could deliver key strategic insights that made decision-making easier, we figured that, well, that's that's data. Um, And so we built Film Forward. Um, And we launched it in beta with a couple of companies. We had one very large company that took a big risk on us to... Um, to pilot this program. So we got to learn a lot really fast. Um, and that's, yeah, that's how we got it started. How did you get the, the large company on board? Well, you'll remember that I had just spoken to a hundred some odd diversity and inclusion professionals mm-hmm. <laughs> over the previous six months. And it would turn out, well, that was a really good lead generation idea. Um, so once we built something, I had a lot of people to go back to and show it to. Makes total sense. And then taking a giant step back with Seed and Spark, how did this company get started in the first place, Emily? Yeah, that's a very different direction. I was um, making theater in New York, very downtown theater. Um, 
and I'm very happy doing it. Um, I was a part of a couple of theater companies and, uh, and in the, in the summer, very, very hot New York summer of, oh, in the land before time, 2000, 2010, I can't, 2010, uh-huh. um, uh, I was producing a play. Um, it was a site-specific play. We were playing to about 35 people a night in the living room of this mansion. <laughs> but it got written up in the New York Times. And um, because we were secret about the tickets, because this was like legit someone's house, yeah. um, <laughs> New Yorkers hate being told no, or they love us. <laughs> they love knowing. <laughs> so we sold out before we had even started. Um, and we were doing this incredible Nordic feminist play called Hedda Gabler, um, which if you're a theater nerd, that will mean something to you. It's sort of the equivalent of like Hamlet for women. It's a role that women of a certain age really want to play. Um, and it was being played by a sort of inappropriately young for the role actress named Caitlin Thrilled, who's a phenomenal talent. And now you see her on all sorts of TV shows like Succession. And um, she was coming to the theater or to the house at night um, to play this incredible role. And then during the day, she was being asked to audition for roles in movies like Pretty Girl and Pretty Girlfriend and Pretty Best Friend and Hot (laughs) Best Friend. And it was like finally having a personal insight into what was really happening on the big screen. I started to look at movies completely differently. And all of a sudden... Uh, I realized that I didn't see myself or any of my friends or the relationships I knew with women. They just weren't reflected on screen. Um, And so we decided we were going to make a movie that summer. And because I was producing theater, they were like, well, you'll produce the movie. I was like, sure. I'm sure that's fine. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, It would turn out to be way harder than uh, anything I had ever done before. Um, I was very lucky to have incredible... Sherpas along the way, incredible <laughs> guides and mentors um, and smart people. But because I was not trying to make a movie to like be in the pictures, I was trying to make a movie to change what was on screen. Um, I was asking a really different set of questions. We ended up crowdfunding uh, for a portion of this of the budget. Um, but Kickstarter and Indiegogo were really kind of brand new back then. And yeah. we didn't really want to ask for a pile of money. We wanted people to know what it would take for us to tell a different kind of story about women. So um, we made a wedding registry <laughs> of all the <laughs> things we needed in order to make this movie happen. And we listed them on a WordPress website and we put a little uh, PayPal link at the bottom. That integration, by the way, is still the most technical thing I have ever done as a founder <laughs> of any kind. Amazing. Um, at one time I set up a Calendly link, you know, I, these things. Um, but I, we integrated a PayPal link at the bottom and um, just started uh, sending it to our friends. Yeah. Um, we just started sending it to our friends and uh, we were benefiting from the days of the Facebook open social graph mm-hmm. where when you posted something, your friends would see it and all their friends would see it. This was the pre- oppressive algorithm days. Ah, good times um, those were. Yeah, I know. It was, a, it was a moment. We had a moment where it really could have been much more beautiful <laughs> than it is now. Yeah. Um, money ruins everything. <laughs> um, yeah, and we uh, we raised not just the 20000 we needed. We, we raised 23000 in cash and then hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans and gifts 
of things like locations and lots of goods and services. Uh, and that started to break open a whole lot of other opportunities because all of these sales agents and distributors who wouldn't really take a call with me or certainly didn't take me seriously. And to be fair, I didn't know what I was doing. They started leaning in when I told them we had 440 email addresses of people who had helped support the film. And that everywhere we took this film around the country, people who supported this film showed up and brought their friends. Um, and that was a very interesting moment for me because I was like, oh, if I have the audience data, I have the power. Yep. That's, that feels really good. And this was before I had, you know, I knew anything about traction, right? Because um, <laughs> these were not concepts that were talked about in creative industries. We didn't talk about traction. Um, so uh, creators started coming to me and asking me for advice to, on their Kickstarter campaigns and um, and then, but they were really liked the sort of wish list idea. And, um, yeah, somebody said, maybe you should try to start a platform. So I was like, sure, that sounds fine. I'll just do that while I make these other movies that I want to make. Cause now I'd been bitten by the bug. Um, and, uh, an, an investor, one of the very first people to write a check, um, I brought her my, my plan for, a slate of films and this little platform that was going to be called the independent media wish list. It's my little crowdfunding platform. And she was like, no, Emily, you have to choose. You're going to be a film producer. Or you're going to start this company. And I remember being sort of offended by that as if I couldn't do it all. She was right. Um, and I chose, um, and that became seed and spark. How did you choose at that time? Um, it was clear to me that I could make a larger impact. So at that time, I was, you know, putting together a slate of like three films. And as I started to think about Seed and Spark, you know, I think about like, it probably would have taken me the last six to seven, well, the last eight years that Seed and Spark has been alive to make the films that I had on that slate. And instead, I don't know, let me go to the homepage really quickly here. Yeah. Um, because we have a ticker that keeps me uh, informed. Uh 2,223 new movies and shows have been made Jeez. since we launched. And most of those just in the last couple of years. Yeah, we're just about to cross, probably by the end of today, we'll cross 28 million raised. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I think it became clear to me I could have a much larger impact on what was up on the screen if I built a platform instead of made a couple of movies. Um, and I still, I'm, I'm back to making movies. I'll have a movie coming out next year. Um, I've made a web series um, and, you know, executive produced where I can um, because I still think it's such a powerful consumable form of storytelling, but we're losing its power when everything is delivered by a recommendation algorithm that doesn't give a shit if you change your mind yeah. or challenge your worldview. It just wants you to keep you watching on the platform. To the point of then you obviously made the decision to go the platform route and you've had a massive impact through that and way more films have been created because of that decision you made. But what went into creating the platform initially, Emily? Oh my God. You know, <laughs> I feel lucky almost that I don't really remember because that's eight years ago now. Yeah. Um, like here's what's in my memory. Uh, my boyfriend at the time was a chef. He worked really, really, really long hours and he would leave and I would be at my desk in a bathrobe working on my computer. <laughs> and he would come home 
And I would be at my desk in my bathrobe working at the computer. And he'd be like, have you eaten? And he'd be like, uh, maybe. I don't remember. Anyway, um, <laughs> it was uh, it was a lot of work. Um, I think some of the, I think, big steps along the way were I worked with a friend of mine who was a front-end developer. And that was like the most technical person I was in regular contact with at that time. Um, and he just helped me build a wireframe, right? So he, he knew how to like make a website from nothing, right? So he, um, he helped me build a wireframe for this idea called the independent media wishlist. And I went to a film festival and I watched a panel on the future of film. Um, and this was at the beginning of digital distribution. And I'll never forget, I was watching a, a distributor with his head in his hands this wasn't even a film festival. No, I went to something at um, oh, one of the film schools in New York City. Um, and this, you know, it was like a free open event. And this distributor had his head in his hands and he said, uh, I just don't, I just don't know how, what we're going to do. <laughs> like everything has changed and I just don't know what we're going to do. And then there was another guy on the panel who was like, this is like, the wide open future. Like you can do what you want. Yeah. You'll have to work harder for less money for a while. Um, but okay. And I was like that guy. And I went up to him afterwards and I introduced him. I introduced myself and, and he became kind of an informal mentor. And he did also just say like the most Hollywood thing anybody ever said to me, which was, well, if you want to be a player in this business, you got to go where the players are. And I was like, all right. <laughs> and he said, so if you want, you know, feedback on that wireframe, you should take it to Sundance. Um, so I maxed out my credit card and I took myself to Sundance. Um, and I still have nightmares about the housing situation that I had there, but, uh, but I, I just talked to anybody who would talk to me. I had a, like an old iPad um, and I put this wireframe on there because that was about all this iPad had the capacity to handle. And um, I just showed it to literally anybody who would talk to me. I went to every free open room. I tried to garner a couple of invites to events. Um, I had one filmmaker friend who showed up. And so I had a buddy. Um, and that's where I got my first advisor. Uh, and he introduced me to the company that would help build the first version of the product. Um and that, you know, that was really, that was really the beginning. Um, every step that I took along the way, I was trying to sort of meet more people who could be helpful, um, you know, and, and a, a man who seemed to have enough money to invest, right, and had been in business for a long time. So I was just like, I just kept in touch with him. And, um, you know, kept him up to date on our progress and listened to the hard questions he asked. Um, you know, filmmakers that I would meet. I was going to networking events. I mean, I was really just trying to meet as many people as I can. I'm saying this now and realizing like, boy, it, it sure helps to be an extrovert in this case. <laughs> uh, certainly, yes, it does. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, I just talked to anybody who would talk to me and then I kept them up to date on my progress. And the more progress I made, the more people were like, okay, actually, I really want to like formally get involved. And I remember when, uh, when I got the first email that was like, okay, we're ready to get involved. And I, I didn't totally understand that that meant we're ready to invest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had forwarded the email 
I think to my dad. And I was like, does this mean what I think it means? Um, and yeah, it would turn out they were ready to write a check. And at that point I was like, well, I guess I need to incorporate and get a bank account. <laughs> that might uh, be helpful. <laughs> you know, and then it was six more months till we launched. Um, and it was also, it was also several more months until we took any money. Um, so even once I had that commitment, I, I didn't take it until I knew what the F I was going to spend that money on. Yeah. Um, and, and I consider myself incredibly lucky to have had that vote of confidence because it allowed me to take a bunch of other steps that I probably otherwise wouldn't have taken. Um, but that was a year. I mean, what I just described to you was about a year of work. So a year before you, you launched, you're saying? A year and a half. So like before I got to the place where somebody was like, yes, I would like to get involved. I had already been working on this for a year. Okay. And then they get, they want to get involved. Then you launched basically six months after that. Yeah, that's right. And then for that, then what went into the launch and how many people, you know, or projects you'd end up getting on the platform when you did launch? Uh, there were 14 crowdfunding projects and 12 streaming films. And that really came from all of that filmmaker networking I was doing. I was going to events. I was talking to filmmakers. I was telling them about what I was building and I was getting them excited to be involved. I started, um, oh, RIP Tumblr. I started a single <laughs> Tumblr like six or seven months before we launched called The Daily Seed and Spark, where um, we started trying to engage folks. And then I read at the behest of one of these early advisors, I read uh, The Lean Startup. Um, and I don't remember much from it except the Dropbox story. And the Dropbox mm -hmm. story was basically that uh, for, for the five of you who haven't read Lean Startup, um, it would have been too expensive. To, you couldn't build a cheap beta of Dropbox. Like Dropbox was such, at that time, transformational technology that like all you could do was show people what the world would be like if Dropbox existed. But they needed like a lot of money to make that manifest. So they made a, a video. <laughs> and I remember I was on the subway. I remember exactly where I was sitting. I was sitting in one of those sort of like corner seats right by the door. I was on the subway and I was like, oh my God, a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I got my friends together with whom I had made this film. Um, my AD, who was actually a director, the cinematographer, um, we hired a sound guy. Uh, and I spent, uh, I think, a total of 10000 of my investment dollars making our very first um, Seed and Spark promotional video um, to explain the world that we wanted to create. Um, and we, when we released that, um, it got picked up by some like, you know, indie filmmaker blogs and sites and people got really excited and that caused people to submit um, films. And that's how we got our first customers. That's incredible. And from that then, that those are the early days. That's the first, the, well, the initial launch of it, a year and a half into having this idea then. From that, then, as you kind of had that validation of this is a real thing, I mean, what went into the growth? Because you went from that to, like you said, 2,000-something um, you know, films and millions of dollars raised for these companies. I'm just curious, is what, what fueled the growth of the company after the kind of initial launch? Was it more of those blogs? Was it just word of mouth? Uh, what went into that? Um, well, let me just start by saying that um, the outsource firm I used to build the Versed version of the site sold me a lemon. 
And Mm. for the first two to three months, 10 concurrent users would take the site down. (laughs) Uh, That's how badly it was built. And we were like processing payments in our own bank account. I was like writing checks to filmmakers. It was like super internet 1.0 way after internet 1.0. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) best started donors choose uh, in I think 2000, right? He was internet 1.0. I had no excuse for the internet 1.0 of the site, except that I didn't know what I was doing really. Um, and, uh, we had really bad tech. I got really lucky. I mean, really lucky. And this is where like, you know, network and privilege, I think like are a big part of my story is that um, I went to an amazing public high school in Sacramento, California. Um, and like, uh, I don't know, some 10% of my class went to Berkeley. And they went to Berkeley in the time where if you went to Berkeley and you studied anything around computers, you were going to end up in Silicon Valley at a really auspicious time. So yeah. like, I had friends who were who were engineers early at Facebook, early at uh, Google, um, and one of those engineers, very lucky for me, um, left his job and helped us rescue the site, like line by line of code. Wow. Um, and it was it was torturous because we were built on Drupal at the time and it was like it was a mess. Um, but while he was rescuing the site line by line, we um, we decided to build the brand in person. And we launched a workshop called Crowdfunding to Build Independence um, that was really about how to leverage the tools of crowdfunding to build a truly independent, sustainable career that you control. Um, And it was about, you know, IP ownership and audience ownership and power. Um, And a lot of the things that we now know are, like, absolutely essential if you want to have any creative independence. Um, so we, uh, we took that on the road. Um, I got in my car, uh, in Los Angeles and I drove across country and back with one of my co-founders and we taught this workshop anywhere that would have us. And we taught it to 150 people in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we taught it to two people in St. Louis, Missouri (laughs) Um, and um, built relationships with film festivals and arts organizations in person. And that would become a national education program. And that's really what put us on the map is we showed up in person and we showed up in person right up until the pandemic. We were doing 120 live workshops a year in 50 cities um, since 2014. Wow. Um, yeah. And I, like partnerships, we, uh, we built relationships with almost a thousand organizations at this point. I think the list is like 880 something, um, uh, film festivals, arts organizations, nonprofits, educational institutions, um, you know, government arts agencies, film schools, maybe I already said that anyway, you know, and, and people who were, interested in in cultivating a vibrant artist community and who needed content for those artists and we still teach at some of the top institutions we teach about crowdfunding we teach about pitching we teach about distribution 
In those 120 workshops per year, obviously you had a network you had been building up from talking to so many different people. How did you go about deciding on where? Was it just anywhere you could possibly do a workshop because you reach more people, or what went into that uh, that side yeah. of things? Obviously, it's a lot. That's a lot yeah. to do. I'm curious. It was literally anybody who would have us, right? Yeah. Like we had, we were in no position to be discriminated. <laughs> um, over time, we became very intentional about the diversity of our network. Yeah. So we really wanted to go to um, historically marginalized uh, and under-resourced communities where it was only dumb reasons that they didn't have the resources that everyone else had. And I, those dumb reasons are like racism. Oh, um, that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we spent, um, I think after the first two years, we started to really be meticulous about partnering with organizations that would give us the most diverse demographic and geographic footprint we could find. Um, there were places that we went that we realized like, you know, we would meet a ton of really interesting creators, right? So we'd go back there and there were places where we'd sort of see the same old people <laughs> every time. And so, <laughs> you know, less, less valuable for us because, you know, those were maybe creators that we were already in touch with. Um, so it, it has become much more about, you know, expanding our network and our reach. And it's been really interesting um, during the pandemic, you know, we did a workshop uh, on Friday with Kat Candler, who's a showrunner and uh, writer, director, producer, although that's, she's writer, director is what I should really say. Cause that's, um, that's the work that she really loves. Um, we had people attending from Indonesia and Brazil and New Zealand. And I feel like people who woke up in the middle of the night to watch these workshops. So, <laughs> um, so our footprint has, has really expanded. And I think that is uh, very exciting for us as, you know, some small silver lining is that obviously when you're doing things in person, there's people who can't make it yeah. right at that day and time. So now we have a much broader and more flexible reach. One thing we haven't discussed yet with this, obviously it's a, it's a business as well. What is the business model behind this? Yep. Um, on the education side, uh, we garner sponsorship and uh, we have a pay what you can model. Um, so if, you know, after we always want to present our education for free, that's part of the access promise of the platform. Um, but if creators want to chip in, you know, 10 bucks or whatever, a dollar, that's great. Um, and then crowdfunding, we take 5% of cash raised, uh, which is pretty industry standard. And then uh, on, the, uh, on the corporate side, uh, these are, it's a SaaS platform, right? So it's a SaaS model, right? It's a, it's a per seat subscription and an onboarding fee and a monthly customer success fee. And then another thing to dive into as well, with your, with your platform, you mentioned obviously the amount of education that goes into this side of things of helping people understand, the creators understand, you know, raising funds. I would love to hear more about what that entails and what would be helpful for other creators out there who are thinking about maybe crowdfunding for their projects. What goes into that? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an almost two hour workshop, so I will. Yeah. Um, so you have like 30 seconds. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> the highlight is uh, preparation and knowing and building a relationship with an, uh, an audience, right? Not just your friends and family, but an audience in advance of running a campaign. Um, so really spending time to think about, let's broaden it for entrepreneurs. Who's your customer and why will they give a shit about helping bring this into the world? Yeah. Right. 
because with a with a particularly with a creative crowdfunding campaign, um, you sort of have to explain why it would hurt us all if this didn't exist. You know, it's not as simple as a, a, a product, right? It's like some of those Kickstarter projects that are like, here's a cool widget. Like, you're like, cool, I want to buy that widget. Um, <laughs> and I would like that widget to exist in the world. And I these, these you know, entrepreneurs seem cool and I want to support them. Um, with, with film, it's really about um, building a community that really wants to um, help a story reach people. Yeah. Um, and so it's because they see themselves represented by it or they want other people to know about these stories or it feels, you know, um, important to their community or they just need a really good laugh <laughs> <laughs> that isn't these like same old, same old Hollywood stuff. So yeah. I think I think that's really you have to I mean, every great pitch answers four questions succinctly and creatively why me why this why now and why you why why are you the right person to get involved you mentioned early on that obviously you had some issues with the outsourced firm that you had build this and you brought a friend on board through your network that was able to help you build the platform what have been the other challenges of of building a crowdfunding platform it's an interesting business model to have uh, i'm curious as to any other particular things that stand out along the way as you've been building seed and spark that's been challenging that you've had to overcome uh, along the way i think designing for equity is one of the hardest things to do in crowdfunding because you know crowdfunding as a premise is not new uh there's a couple of places that do it really well churches um and public radio (laughs) um and then nonprofits, obviously right and there's there's different versions of crowdfunding it's like i throw a a a gala event and everyone shows up and writes checks or um or you know i incorporate the ask into programming and i can get members and you know there's all sorts of models for crowdfunding that have existed for a really long time I think that crowdfunding platforms, by and large, were built by coastal people with coastal networks. Um, and there was a real expectation that, like, your community would be that first money in, right? There was like, oh, you're, you know, your friends and family are always your first money in. Um, and there are people for whom that is not accessible. Yeah. And frankly, there are lots of communities out there who only know giving to the church. Like, arts patronage is not just a given for everyone in this country. And so, um, so for us, you know, and we learned this because we were on the road talking to filmmakers face to face all across the country. I wouldn't have known this. I'm a coastal person with a coastal network. Yeah. Right. But, um, we were really more than teaching. I think we were really learning as we went across the country, uh, really trying to understand what the challenges were. And so the education program is also about how to help creators who don't have, uh, an elite network, um, to take advantage of these same tools, to be able to tell their stories, to be able to bring power back to their communities. Um, but that, that has, and that continues to be a challenge. It will always be our challenge. Um, designing for equity and, you know, there, there are pieces of inequity that we don't know how to touch yet. Right. So we, we, we're already assuming people have access to the internet, right? <laughs> the internet <laughs> itself is, um, 
is already creating a stratification. So, so we have a lot, you know, we have a long way to go. Along the way as well, building this company, um, going through Accelerator, what was that experience like for you? I kind of a love-hate relationship with, with accelerators. Um, I fundamentally don't believe in the growth at all costs model. Mm-hmm. And most accelerators are built to sort of like spin up, become investable, sell, make a very small pool of already very wealthy people wealthier. And spin the innovation into one of, you know, 12 to 20 companies that are making the purchases of all of these startups that also PS are owned by those same wealthy people who are making the investments. So they're making money on two sides of the business and concentrating the, um, the innovation and the capital. Um, and fundamentally, I think that's a, a bankrupt thing. We're not building Seed and Spark to get rich. We're building Seed and Spark to shift power to communities through creativity. And that's fundamentally at odds with like most capitalist structure. But this is also the framework we have to work in. Like this is what we got. (laughs) Um, And I wasn't in a particular program that had a lot of understanding of impact. Um, I could have done a better job of selecting the right program for me. Um, I do think we learned incredibly well how to interrogate the most, like the most basic assumptions of our business. Um, it helped us develop a real meaningful process for product development, as opposed to like, I think we should build this cause that sounds good. <laughs> um, you know, we learned a ton about, uh, yeah, a- around product I think, um, you know, building stuff that people actually are going to use. Um, and, and I struggled because uh, they wanted me to tell a very specific story about my business, which I succumbed to. And then I spent nine months telling that story and being really miserable and not really being able to raise any money with that story because that wasn't what we were building. Yeah. Um, and I, I realized after a while, like, I don't, I don't want to have a cap table uh, of, you know, five to seven prestigious white men um, when I'm trying to build a business that's about, like, meaningful equity. Um, and, and I was going to have to take a really, really different tack if, for example, cap table diversity man- mattered to me or investor diversity ma- mattered to me. Um, yeah. And there was not a lot of space inside the program that I was in to be thinking about that. doesn't mean there aren't programs that aren't slated towards impact. But <clears throat> I also think that the sort of notion of impact investing or double bottom line investing is, is challenging because at the end of the day, you will be forced to make a choice between profit or impact. And the one that you choose, well, that's actually your bottom line. <laughs> Right. So, yeah. So there's only single bottom line investing. And and ultimately, like, I really wanted to look for values alignment. And it took me a long time to figure out, like, to disentangle myself from the the larger kind of startup thinking, um, you know, and 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 be able to to, you know, raise money my way and build the company my way and um, those things. And to that point then, Emily, how did you have those 
conversations with the people that did invest and the people that you did think were aligned with you because for other entrepreneurs out there who maybe feel a similar way, uh, I'm sure they'd be wondering the same thing. Well, how do I find those investors or you know, who are some of those people? How'd you go about that then? I talked to everybody I had met who I really liked. And I was like, introduce me to people you really like. And I don't really care what the check size is. I just want to meet a bunch of really great people. And th- that was a much happier time. <laughs> even when people didn't invest, they were like meaningfully excited and actually offered help and actually yeah. helped make other introductions. And um, and so that made a huge difference. You know, I, I just, I, I do think right now, um, you know, they say it's not what you know, it's who you know, but it's also like, who do you vibe with? Who do you actually actively like? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think there's a lot more to the no asshole policy than like a cute phrase. Um, you know, we have seen some dark times in this business and our investor and advisor pool has rallied be- behind us time and time and time again. And like kept their faith in me and their faith in this team and, you know, it's just uh, building a business is uh, almost unrecommendably hard. Yeah. To be really honest. Like, I woke up this morning and I really didn't want to do it today. I really didn't. I'm 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 burnt out. So much of our success has come at like <laughs> personal expense to me, and. Uh, and I need to change some things about my relationship to um, building the business in order to continue to scale it. Um, one of one of my early advisors said to me, "To scale your company is to scale yourself," and that has never not been true. Yeah. But you have to really be in, you have to know that and then be willing to to do it and go through that pain because we don't make anything easy in this country. On that note, Emily, how do you, I mean, because it is so difficult to build a startup and I've obviously interviewed, I mean, hundreds of people now at this point, we all have different ways of going about this. How do you recharge? How do you plan on then recharging? And if you're not doing it correctly now, you you mentioned like, how do you plan on doing that? Or how have you currently, you know, recharge, step away from work, kind of keep going? Yeah. I mean, I want to stop and say like, I've never had to do what I'm doing in a global pandemic uh, in, in such a grotesque political environment. Um, you know, I have a family member who's ill, like the, there are personal pieces to this that make it challenging. And the truth is like life goes on while you build a business. And so you don't really get to protect yourself from the other things that can happen in the world. And that can really influence your energy for what you're doing. Um, so I have an incredible and passionate team, um, and they are the reason that we continue to survive and thrive. Um, so hiring really well is one of the ways that you are able to step away and recharge. Um, you have to have just a crew of um, other entrepreneurs and business builders around you who you can talk to in great confidence. You have to have great advisors. Um, you need to not have assholes on your cap table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, and set a schedule and stick to it to the best of your ability. You know, I work from ten thirty to five thirty. Um, I start late because we're in a pandemic and we don't have childcare, so I take the kids 
uh, until 1030 in the morning. My husband does the rest of the day. And then um, at 530, for the most part, I close my computer. I go upstairs. I cook dinner for my family. We do, you know, dinner, bath, and bedtime. Uh, and then one to three days a week, I will work after the kids go to bed. But I try not to do more than that. Um, and then on the weekends, I try to set my phone down. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any answers. It's really hard. I don't know. Any- oh, that is the answer. Yeah, that is the yeah, answer. That's- <laughs> that, you know, there's no right answer. It's funny asking this question of entrepreneurs and they're like yeah. expecting me, like needed a right answer. I'm just curious as to what you do. I mean, honestly, just your story and how you approach it because there is no right answer into how you do it. And I think hearing different people and like you mentioned, you know, 1030 to 530, you have the kids in the morning, uh, you know, dinner and everything after that. Like, I think that's helpful for people to understand like what you can still build a company in many different ways. Like there's so many different perspectives on that and there's no right answer. It's finding what will work best for you uh, and what can keep you sane along the way, especially with a global pandemic, with having a family, with other things that are involved, understanding that there's, yeah, there's life outside of the business as well. Um, And I appreciate you sharing that. And I'm always, I'm always curious about books because I'm a, a big reader. So if you, if you have any, you know, books, personal or professional that have been impactful, uh, any, any ones you suggest? This is a, a great embarrassment of mine. Since I started Seed and Spark, it has been really hard to read books. Yeah. Um, I think this is a little unfair because I happen to have inter- been interviewed as a part of this book, but I think Leapfrog Hacks Um is a by Natalie Molina Nino is a really exceptional uh, collection of entrepreneurial wisdom. Um, I think it's important to read things like it's about damn time by Arlen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, In particular, because you actually need to know like what, (laughs) what hustle is and the cost, right? Like what, how much it can hurt along the way. Um, and, and how clear eyed you have to be about your goal. Um, I think there's a really important book for people to be reading right now called how to do nothing. That is the subtitle of which is resisting the attention economy, because I think everybody building businesses right now should think about what we're responsible for. Um, and how we are responsible to our friends, our neighbors, our customers, our country, and our planet. Um, and so reading things that don't put entrepreneurship on a pedestal, that don't put digital technology as a solution for everything on a pedestal, I think that part is really important or you end up building really irresponsible and harmful businesses. Emily, where can people go to learn more about Seed and Spark and connect with you as well? Sure. Well, seedandspark.com and at Seed and Spark on pretty much all the platforms except Parler. Um, and, uh, and I am at Emily Best on Twitter if you want to see me rant and rave about things in the world. Amazing. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story. And uh, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. 
Have a great day.